One of the most infamous picture in the field of public health is a photo of a row of old white men in suits raising one of their hands in oath. Taken on the 14th of April, 1994, in the grand but a little bit bland interior of the Rayburn House office building, it was your typical congressional hearing. Except within one exchange, it was clear that this hearing won't be forgotten by the history books. Representative Ron Wyden began with, quote, I'd like to just go down the row whether each of you believe that nicotine is not addictive. Yes or no, do you believe nicotine is not addictive? William Campbell, president of Philip Morris Tobacco. I believe nicotine is not addictive. James Johnston, representing R.J. Reynolds Tobacco. Cigarettes and nicotine clearly do not meet the classic definition of addiction. Joseph Taddeo of U.S. Tobacco. I don't believe that nicotine or our products are addictive. Andrew Tisch, president and CEO of Lori Lard Tobacco. I believe nicotine is not addictive. Edward Horrigan, also representing R.J. Reynolds Tobacco. I believe that nicotine is not addictive. Thomas Sandifer, CEO of Brown and Williamson Tobacco. I believe that nicotine is not addictive. Donald Johnston, president and CEO of American Tobacco. I, too, believe that nicotine is not addictive. Needless to say, they lied, or perjured themselves. Quite obviously, too. This was in 1994, the effects of nicotine and tobacco were pretty well known. But despite this blatant lie, not much happened to them. And despite what is an incredibly unethical behavior, the tobacco industry remained seemingly unfazed. What happened that day was a signal to the rest of corporate America that perhaps you really can get away with anything. This is Everything is Public Health, a show about all the flowing forces and changing factors that influence the health of the people. This episode, we will take a look at one of the biggest public health concerns of the last century plus. Welcome back to Everything is Public Health. I'm MJ. And I'm Cass. One metric that captures human society's transition into the modern era quite reflectively is the leading causes of mortality. For the vast majority of human history, those causes of death have been acute or sudden or some environmental thing in nature. For example, lots of infectious disease like cholera, tuberculosis are, have been killing people for the vast majority of human history. That's depressing. We can also think of like, <laughs> you know, injuries can be very traumatic and acute. Yeah, uh, that's true. Thinking yeah. about the types of jobs that people have had over time, mm-hmm. manufacturing, agriculture, logging, fishing. Lots of wars in general. Wars <laughs> as, as well. Um, but when we are in a place where we are creating things or producing things, then that exposes you to different kinds of injury risks as well, which can be acute and traumatic and deadly. Yeah, yeah, of course. So that has been the trend for the majority of human history. As we transitioned into the modern era, those acute causes of death fell dramatically over a relatively short period of time in the grand scheme of human history, that is. This is a testament of the various medical and public health advances For example, the discovery of antibiotics helped a lot, but also things like sanitation, food safety we talked about, and various other public health efforts that we will undoubtedly cover in future episodes. However, those acute causes of mortality were in turn replaced by essentially chronic conditions and chronic causes of deaths. Right. So when people are not dying at the age of 30 from (laughs) cholera or or some other uh, infectious disease, then we have longer to live. And now we have more chronic conditions like diabetes, heart disease, cancers that, you know, people can struggle with or fight against for a long time. So we've sort of shifted away from perhaps a a younger death with more acute causes towards a longer life expectancy 
but dealing with more chronic conditions. Yeah. And those chronic conditions sometimes are decades in the making, right? So health deteriorating slowly over time. Oh God, this is so depressing. <laughs> it's like, oh, you know, I just had my birthday, right? And Happy so birthday. I'm excited about getting older, but the way you framed it, like, oh, slowly, slowly, <laughs> slowly deteriorating. deteriorating. Oh. I want to say I feel that too, but I know you're going to yell at me. <laughs> you're I'm not allowed that. to say that you feel old. You're 25. I'm turning 26. Okay. Talk to me when you're 36 or, you know, <laughs> okay. 46 or whatever. We'll revisit we'll this. We'll revisit in 20 years. So the number one cause, uh, you mentioned this, is heart disease, which to be fair, encompasses a host of different heart issues. So it's a very big bucket. Second place is, you know, not surprising cancer, which again, includes literally all types of cancer, which there are hundreds if not thousands of kinds. So these are big buckets and hence they're placed in number one and number two. Third place used to be accidents. Injuries, uh, sorry. MJs. As we've talked about, accident implies that it's not preventable right. or predictable, which we know is not the case in, in most incidents. So injuries. Well, tell that to the CDC because they still use accidents. I know. <laughs> okay, we'll write a formal complaint. Um, but third place used to be injuries, but is now COVID, which is revealing, but we won't go too deep into that today. Given the complex and chronic nature of these conditions, addressing them becomes much harder than addressing things like infectious disease. Because if you have a cholera issue, get a better sanitary water source, right? There are more direct paths to a solution than things like for things like heart disease and cancer. Right. When you have a chronic condition that has multiple factors that can influence the development and the course trajectory of that chronic disease, it's not about just one thing, right? So as you said, with cholera, okay, cleaner water, great. You know, you, you can largely address cholera as an issue, maybe not entirely, but that's a huge sort of attributable fraction of cholera, you know, is clean water. But when you think about heart disease, you've got diet, exercise, family history, other risk-taking behaviors, right? All of these things come together. You have your, the stress and sort of social and societal components and access to healthcare. Like there are so many things outside mm -hmm. of the concept of a infectious disease like cholera. When you're thinking about heart disease, that makes it much, much harder to address. Yeah. So that makes modern public health, uh, um, it gives modern public health a more challenging task. But there is one thing that we could very, I don't want to say easily tackle. There is something that we could directly tackle. Cass, do you know the leading cause of preventable death? Preventable in a sense that we are pretty confident if a particular thing doesn't happen or if a particular thing was done, these deaths would be avoided. It's kind of a gimme question given the topic of the show. Smoking. <laughs> yes, correct. It is indeed cigarettes and smoking or any sort of tobacco product. So smoking is the leading cause of preventable death according to the CDC. I'm not sure if it's in the US or worldwide, but I would not be surprised either way. It has a huge body count, for lack of a better term. Addressing smoking is naturally one of the biggest public health concerns. And now I want to ask, because I don't know how your experience, you are a few years older than me. I don't know how your experience with smoking is. What What's your relationship? Have you smoked in the past or do you know someone that smokes? Yeah. So when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, smoking was still like a cool 
thing to do. People, you could smoke inside. Oh, still. There were smoking sections in restaurants and non-smoking sections. So it was something you saw all the time. Really? Whether it was, oh, wow. you know, a kid's show or, you know, a kid's movie or whatever, like you would still see tobacco products or cigarettes. And, you know, it was the cool thing to do. So I did, I have an older brother and sister who are six years older than I am. And so I, you know, my brother smoked. And so I tried it. Oh, man. Bad, bad idea for two reasons. One, apparently I'm super sensitive. And oh yeah, like, you have asthma, don't you? Right, I have asthma. So, <laughs> you know, that didn't last. And then the nicotine like made me super nauseous. And so that didn't go over well either. Yeah, it's not a pleasant drug. I don't no, think. So I never smoked. Thankfully, I tried to be cool like my older brother and smoke and that thankfully didn't stick because it was disgusting. <laughs> but I know some people who's my nephew, unfortunately, smokes. He vapes technically, which isn't a sick we will get to that yeah yeah but yeah it was thankfully nobody in my sort of core family smoked one of my best friends her mom smoked and i remember going over to her house and everything just smelled like cigarette smoke all the time so anyway now i'm just rambling (laughs) no that's okay so i think growing up i think i didn't realize it was that recent that there were still smoking sections and indoors and stuff but growing up i was not exposed to any of that stuff and like i did not i don't think i know anyone that smoked firsthand that's like my direct connections and so did you go through anti-smoking stuff in school oh no wow no smoking was not something that was talked so we had dare in elementary school which we will do an episode on right that's just (laughs) such a bad let's teach a bunch of suburban white kids who don't know anything about drugs all these drugs yeah anyway we'll come back to this um No, we, so we had D.A.R.E. in elementary school, but we never had any other conversations around smoking. Maybe in, no, actually, I don't recall ever having anything in school about not smoking. It really wasn't until college, at least, if not graduate school, when like some of these, when they were really expanding. Now I need to look it up because. But the thing is, you you couldn't smoke on high school campus right that was still not a thing oh right but you know people would smoke while they walked to high school Uh, put their cigarettes in their backpacks and your high school wasn't like super rural right it was a suburb high school no it was a suburb for sure yeah wow how different experience we have so i'm just looking up on cdc right now in 2014 the surgeon general concluded that smoke-free laws in workplaces and communities help people quit smoking very recent and in 2016 the department of housing and urban development finalized a rule to prohibit smoking in their buildings including resident units that's not that long ago in 2010 a task force on community preventive services reported that 11 studies found that smoke-free laws and policies in workplaces were associated with a 6% increase in tobacco cessation. Okay. And 21 studies found that these laws and policies were associated with a median 3.4% decrease in tobacco use prevalence. So Nice. So it must have been when I was in undergrad. Right. So I, I graduated from high school in 2001. And so when I was in undergrad, I want to say that some of these policies were starting to be talked about. But really, I started my PhD program in 2010. I started graduate school in 2008. And so it was like around that time in my exposure to public health that we were really starting to talk about these issues. And so it's really not as far back as you think it is. You being a wee baby person. (laughs) I'm 25. It seems, yeah, you know, in 2008, how old were you? That's very true. So not not something that's probably top of mind when you're 12 years old or whatever. This is so revealing because I thought, I mean, we found out about the connection between smoking and lung cancer 50s, 60s. 
maybe 70s. And then, so I remember that happening in that time, but it took a long time then for actual things to start phasing in and therefore cigarettes phasing out. Wow, okay, I didn't, I was not expecting that at all. So, Dare, cigarettes was not part of Dare. No. So, keep in mind, I was going through Dare in elementary school in the late 80s and early 90s. So, this people were not paying as much attention to smoking. Right. They weren't paying as much attention then as they are now and, and sort of in the last several years. Right. That's very interesting. I genuinely did not know that smoking was still a thing until I moved to Baltimore. Where I see smokers everywhere, even right right outside the Hopkins Hospital. Perhaps it was because I lived in the suburbs. Perhaps because of the you know the era that I grew up in, or perhaps it was California, or perhaps I was just really sheltered throughout my life, or perhaps I was just you know simply oblivious. But I genuinely believe that smoking was on its way out, and in some way that is true. Smoking rates have fallen over the last two decades, which is a testament to all the educational campaign that we put out until 2020. When it went up for the first time, any guesses to why? Why smoking rates increased? Yeah, so it fell for two decades. Is there one big thing, I would say? It's not one big thing. (laughs) I imagine it's not one big thing. I imagine it was the combination of COVID and unemployment and stress and, you know, all the uncertainty. People were like, well, F this popsicle stand, I'm going to start smoking. You essentially got it. There was many little things. And I don't think there's any one person that is certain that, oh, yes, this is the mechanism for why cigarette or smoking or tobacco product sales have increased for the first time in 20 years. The short answer is many factors, but the suspects are isolation caused by COVID. It brought the habit back for many people because of the stress of COVID and isolation. And then it has tobacco or cigarettes has always been a social thing. So you would go outside together as a group to smoke, right? So people maybe miss that. Perhaps that's just one of the theories. Tobacco companies also use COVID to push a lot of their products. So Stay at home hashtag was co-opted by a lot of vaping companies, which I don't know how that works, but apparently it did. Smoking is down for teens in school at every grade level, but the vaping fad or the e-cig fab a few years ago got a lot of kids into smoking, therefore into cigarettes. Yeah, I was just going to say we had a, a seminar on e-cigarettes at Hopkins when I was a graduate student. So maybe it was maybe like 2012, 2013. And at the time, vaping was really just becoming a thing. Like a lot of places hadn't even banned vaping indoors yet because oh, it was so new. So new. And so yeah. we had this panel and it's I, reflecting back on it. There were several people on the panel who were like, vaping is fantastic. It's going to help people s- stop smoking. Right. We know that the stuff that you put in cigarettes is really bad. And so like we should really be pushing people to vape. And there was, I think, maybe one person on the panel who was like, these vaping fluids come in flavors that are going to make people want to smoke. Yeah. Kids are going to start smoking because of these flavors. And by the way, little kids are finding vape juice and drinking it and dying or getting really sick. So this person was like, I don't even remember who I feel terrible that I don't remember. But this person was like waving the cautionary flag and everybody else was like, no, no, this can be so great. It's going to help people stop smoking. And it's just funny to see that that the one yeah. person who was sort of having the the call to say, hey, this is maybe not a great idea. Yeah, we've, we've seen it happening. I know my nephew who I, who I said vapes, he has like maple syrup pancake 
and mango something. He's like, it just, well, it tastes better. Well, so <laughs> so then you vape more. And if you're at home, like if you can't vape out in public spaces you vape at home, and you're yeah. not going to public spaces, then, if, you know, you may vape or smoke more. Anyway, sorry. No, I think this is a good digression that to take just a really brief one. But when vaping or e-cigs were starting out, it did start out like that. It's like, okay, well, it's the bad stuff in cigarettes. That's, you know, the stuff. So maybe we could invent something that sort of wean people off of cigarettes so that they could still get the... Because we talked about you. it's hard to cut cold turkey anything, right? especially if someone with like a really high nicotine addiction. So they say, oh, this was a great thing. But I know we're supposed to reserve our socialist thoughts for our <laughs> bonus episodes. But, you know, I'll just in, p- plug something here, which is because of capitalism you can't really sell a rehab product as well as you can sell just like a cool product you know so they very quickly realized that if their target was getting people to quit cigarettes they were not going to sell a lot of stuff and so they started experimenting with flavors and stuff and then the rest is history and i'm sure we'll do an entire episode on vaping because we have to but anyway cigarettes still have this cool rebellious image that could be quite alluring to some but the conclusion is, this is a huge concern. Now, some numbers. Cass, are you in the mood for a quiz? Oh, sure. Why not? <laughs> Number of Americans, or that's that might be too, let's say percentage of adults in America, how many of them smoke? Percentage. I th- well, I this was before the increase, so I don't know what it is right now, but prior to the increase, it was around 11%. You're very close. It's uh, depending on where you look at, 11 to 14 so you're, you're hovering around 10 to 15%, which is about 34.1 millions of adults smoking cigarettes, which that's a lot of people that smokes uh, cigarettes. Younger generations smoke much less than older generation, and this is mainly due to the educational campaign as well as the various laws protecting children from cigarette advertising and exposure. Those vaping companies have gotten around those laws, and people are just now starting to patch those things back up again but again we'll come back to that later there is a stark difference in education level the more education you get you're less likely to smoke now how many death is attributable to cigarette smoking every year so i know this only because i happen to be looking this up for something else for a lecture i was giving it's like around a half a million yes 48 nope four hundred and eighty thousand. <laughs> four hundred and eighty thousand. which is a lot of people that's a lot of deaths attributable to cigarettes of those four hundred and eighty thousand people what percentage is attributable to secondhand smoking specifically so they don't smoke okay so this one i don't know so i'm gonna take a swag which is as we recall is a scientific wild guess i'll take a swag between seven and ten percent you are so good at this nine eight to nine percent oh sh- all right spot on i was just thinking like it's got to be enough that you know it's something that we would care enough to report but not so huge that people are freaking out about it that is like shocking right but it's yeah like eight to nine percent from secondhand smoking so these are people who don't smoke but they have conditions attributable to to smoking cigarette smoking because they either live with someone that smoke or they work in an area that a lot of people there smoke. One other thing too, that with that exposure, something that folks have been realizing doing research on vaping is that tobacco smoke, you know, it it sort of floats around and you breathe it in. It might sort of cling to your clothes and different things. But, and so people can be exposed through that, but that with vaping, because it sort of is processed differently through the vape pen and when you breathe it in, that it can actually settle like onto surfaces. And so kids can get exposure, like the way we think of lead paint, like you play with toy, you know, and you stick your hands in your mouth, same kind of issue potentially with vaping and nicotine. So little, little kids are getting exposed that way also. Yeah. 
And so this is called third-hand smoke. So second-hand is the actual vapors in the air. Third-hand is if your vapor gets stuck in your clothes or if you're, like what you said uh, with your vaping, they could actually just settle on surfaces. So these are third-hand smoking. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of data on third-hand smoke because it's a relatively new concept. And it's how would you even research this? I wouldn't, I don't know. Yeah, that'd be really challenging. But anyway, so third-hand smoking, a new vocabulary for our listeners. In terms of direct medical cost, for adults related to smoking, what is the economic cost of smoking? How much has it cost us? Oh my gosh. Okay. I have no idea. So I'm going to do some swag calculating again. Oh gosh. Okay. Based on what I know from the costs of firearm-related mortality. Mm-hmm. It's a good touchstone. And given the relative difference between the sort of the proportion of firearm deaths versus the proportion of smoking-related deaths. Wow, you're doing some high-level thinking. <laughs> $100 billion? Okay, you're not terribly off. It's $255 billion. So, you know. All right, at least I got, you got the, the billion, billion with a B. You got B. the magnitude, got right? That. Yeah, so it's $255 billion with a B. And oh, ouch. Which is, to put that number into perspective, that is a third of our military budget. You know how people are complaining how our military budget is really high? A third of our military budget, that is how much smoking has cost this country. Ouch. And another number, if military budget is not your thing, that is the GDP of Portugal. So we spent the GDP of Portugal because of smoking-related death or smoking-related medical issues. This is a big issue, right? And if we can effectively tackle smoking, we can prevent many deaths and save so much money. It's Again, CDC says leading cause of preventable death is smoking. And we've talked about in prior episodes that, you know, people have a false perception that we're wanting to spend more money on things like we want to have these new programs or these new processes or policies or whatever, and it's going to cost us more money. But people forget that we're already paying for these things, right? So we're we're paying for the cost of medical care from smoking where we have lost revenue, right? Lost productivity when people die early from this preventable disease. And so if we can go upstream, spend the money to prevent these issues from occurring down the line, yeah, we're spending money now, but we're going to save money later because we're spending billions of dollars on this, as you said. So if we spend millions of dollars now, we can save billions of dollars later. Yeah. And I want to emphasize that this is direct medical cost. So let's say we spend $255 billion with a B on prevention. You think it's a wash, but again, loss productivity is an issue. There's a lot of environmental issue, right? Cigarette butts are they're pollutants in the environment. So cleanup cost, production cost, there's, this is just direct medical cost. So even if we spend the same amount of money, we're still saving money because there's more costs associated with cigarette smoking. Now, Cass, I want you to put yourself into the shoe of the tobacco lobby. Everyone knows at this point that smoking is bad for you, and there are tons of reports and articles and educational campaigns and widespread general consensus that smoking is bad. You are a capitalistic tobacco person, and you want to increase your profit. What do you do? Oh, this is super easy. You have targeted advertising. I don't even need to scroll down to know what you're going to say, because this is not just the tobacco lobby. We see this with all sorts of products when companies are losing market share or people aren't purchasing their product. Maybe they got some bad press or whatever. You do targeted advertising to subgroups of the population or certain geographies to get folks to buy your product. So 
in the U.S., smoking rates have been declining. And so the tobacco industry started targeting lower income folks. They started targeting other countries to sell their cigarettes and sort of exporting them outside of the U.S., uh, yeah, it, that, that's a no-brainer. Unfortunately, the same strategy we take in public health sort of to, to tailor messages to sort of have a, something that resonates with folks. The other side does that as well. That's true. So you pretty much got a spot on. They realize that they are going to lose some ground in terms of, for example, wealthy, suburban, middle-class individuals. So they, they have to expand their market share elsewhere. So we have a lot of evidence that they are specifically targeting, like you said, low-income neighborhoods, but also... Uh, black communities and uh, immigrant communities and also kids with vaping which you know and i want to do this episode because of they're so stubbornly alive you know (laughs) like smoking should not be a thing but they're they're still going and then you think oh maybe their profit has gone down dramatically over the last decade not really like it's gone down but they're still cranking in like millions if not billions of dollars collectively and targeted advertising and then they have a global strategy too so we're thinking about the united states they have moved their markets to other countries so in a lot of places in asia where um it's still part of the culture to smoke or a lot of places in europe where cigarettes are still cool target advertising both domestically in the united states but also internationally as well so one thing i wanted to reflect on i was just was remembering sort of thinking back to the way conversations around smoking have shifted over time and one thing that Mm -hmm. is sticking out in my mind that we haven't talked about that i think is really important Sort of one of the contributors to the decline in smoking over time mm-hmm. has been truth, like the truth campaign. You may be too young to have remembered these, but the folks who were lobbying against the tobacco industry would do all sorts of not stunts, but, you know, sort of campaigns or events right. where yeah. one of them is they would go outside of the tobacco company's headquarters and lay out body bags, sort of representing all the people that had died from smoking that day. And it's been really interesting to see sort of the youth advocacy around guns take some of those same we are the truth kinds of pieces. But I do think that, you know, despite the the targeted advertising on the side of the tobacco industry, really educating folks in a way that resonates with them did contribute to the decline. And, you know, it's unfortunate to know that rates of smoking are increasing again. But hopefully as as we get to a a new normal or sort of equilibrium, at least with COVID, that maybe we can circle back to this and and reapproach uh, smoking as a public health problem. Yeah, secondhand smoking campaigns have been very effective at getting people to stop because uh, you're, it's not just yourself; you're affecting other people. That tend to be a pretty effective messaging. But but yeah, like smoking or tobacco companies, they're still standing. I'm still standing. Please join us on Monday for our bonus show after the show, Public Health Plus, for our more spicy takes. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Everything is Public Health. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and spread the word about the show so more and more people can learn about the awesomeness of public health. New episodes are released every Thursday on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at EverythingIsPH or Instagram at EverythingIsPublicHealth. Send us questions or comments to EverythingIsPublicHealth at gmail.com. Also reach out if you think we missed an important perspective or suggest a future episode topic. You can find me on Twitter at Dr. Krufasi. 
And if you're interested in any of my gluten-free baking experiments, you can follow me on Instagram at CassPhD. Please also give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help us immensely. If you want to support the show directly, we have a Patreon page and you can find the link for that in the episode description below. And remember, everything is public health. Everything is public health. <laughs>